the morning of Hurricane Katrina, the total capitalized real estate value of New Orleans was $25 billion. The total federal outlay since has been $53 billion to try and recover um, and get that city back after the storm. So uh, as uh, Ed Holding, uh, now a professor at MIT, who used to be head of the FHA, he said to me, uh, investors should be right to assume that the government is going to bail out climate risk. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. This is the second part of a discussion I had with Rajiv Ranaday and Owen Wilcock of Climate Core Capital. Fascinating way of looking at the risk of climate change and how we invest. We'll be talking today about rising heat and what that means in terms of values, in terms of insurance, in terms of perhaps a gradual reversal of growth in some of our most successful cities. We'll be talking about how Blackjack has insights for how we can invest into this kind of risk and looking also at a rolling cycle of impairment scenario where a lot of our markets may be seeing gradual uh, decrease of the value that they provide today to the people that live there. We're going to be talking a bit about the tipping point, and we're going to be talking a little bit about California's water challenges and what we can do about them. So um, let's pick up that conversation where we just left to off. pick up on what Raj has just been saying, I think for the ordinary homeowner or firm, it's not going to be the one heat wave necessarily that pushes you over the edge. It's going to be too hot for little league tournaments to be outside. You're going to start seeing stories in the newspaper about road workers needing to be uh, only allowed to work at night because it's too hot in the middle of the day to retar the roads. Um, you might start seeing home insurance and health insurance bundled together for retirees because the providers don't want to extend home insurance to someone in the latter years of their life if they live in an energy inefficient home and they're effectively dealing with heat stress above the norm on a hot day because their home isn't air conditioned well. Um, so it's not going to be necessarily someone consciously moving because of climate change, but all of these different place-based features and characteristics of the market as we understood it in a prior era just don't exist anymore. And capital starts to respond to that dynamic. In the article that you wrote uh, titled, Predicting the Climate Future, uh, which seems to me what we've been talking about is that prediction. You started with an interesting model of talking about blackjack as, as a, a way of thinking about real estate investing in these markets. Um, does either of you want to take a crack at explaining that? Yeah, the, the, the image was effectively transporting the reader to a blackjack table in Las Vegas. And uh, for those, for many in the audience who've played blackjack, when the sum of your current hand ends up to 17, an experienced gambler can effectively calculate whether they're going to go over 21 if they ask for another card. So the card coming next is still a random variable and the gambler might lose, but their experience, all of those games on the internet, all of those days at the table prior gives them a marginal advantage in making an educated prediction. So no one's good at predicting the future, but there are many people with marginal advantages. And the analogy we were trying to bring to real estate was um, the real estate universe is effectively constantly evaluating and betting on those markets. They're always going to be investing in cities, 
But when you're making a bet on a city's future, you're knowing a lot. You're basing a lot on what you've seen in the past, but never enough to fully predict the card coming out of the hand. So we think about climate risk as a marginal advantage. It can never completely uh, drive the real estate fundamentals of a market. It's always going to be an input in an underwrite, but we think it is a meaningful input. It's the primary filter for all of our investment decisions with our LP's capital. And we think it's something that the rest of the community should probably give a lot more thought to. And, and, and to the analogy, um, most investors don't have the experience of thinking about climate risk. So all of those cards you've been dealt over time have been about supply and demand, liquidity, uh, growth expectations. They've not been about how you think about climate risks impact on various elements of financial performance. There was a, a map in that article that, that you created um, for what you called a death valley index, talking about this heat, the, the, you know, how many days over 95 degrees. And that map was the sunbelt. It was literally the sunbelt that we have seen massive growth and, and continued great interest in from investors because of that growth and because of you know how you have more and more young people in these places. Um, one of the questions that, that I heard at MIPIM this year was, when are we going to start seeing um, a brown discount when it comes to institutional quality assets that are not sustainable, that haven't checked all the boxes, et cetera? Um, what do you think in terms of repricing based on climate change, when it might happen, where it might happen, what are you looking for in terms of where those kinds of tipping points occur? Uh, obviously, you can't predict it precisely, but where do you think that's going to be? I'll, I'll say something quickly and then hand to Raj, who has a much better lens on the institutional mindset. Um, the morning of Hurricane Katrina, the total capitalized real estate value of New Orleans was $25 billion. The total federal outlay since has been $53 billion to try and recover um, and get that city back after the storm. So uh, as uh, Ed Holding, uh, now a professor at MIT, who used to be head of the FHA, he said to me, uh, investors should be right to assume that the government is going to bail out climate risk off that one data point. Um, and when Raj and I spoke about this once, he turned to me and said, yes, but when was the last time you saw an institutional deal come out of New Orleans? So what we could imagine occurring is almost like a rolling cycle of impairment and disinvestment where there are nuanced tiers of assets. Some assets still continue to hold a cachet and there is capital that goes into it, but it becomes a very different story for the market at large. When do assets get sort of discounted due to their either lack of sustainable features, lack of modern features, or in our case, you know, exposure to climate risk? Um, you know. Can, candidly, we would argue you're going to get the discount in the numbers, right? So what's going to happen is your NOI over a certain period of time or over a trend is just going to be lower than a comparable asset in a non-climate risk exposed market, or your likelihood of NOI drops is going to be higher due to insurance going up, property taxes going up, lending requirements getting more stringent, which could impair liquidity, um, in addition to things like d demand shifting. So. Uh, you know, the number of um, potential tenants or the, the rates that they would pay shifting out of these markets. So when, when investors ask us, you know, when will I know, you'll know because you'll lose money uh, is how you'll know. Um, the tipping point 
to Owen's point, and I think something we, we often talk about to the Katrina example as well, is this, is this idea of an accordion, right? So the, the market's kind of, um, the risk is more recognized and then it gets covered. It's more recognized, capital comes in and it gets covered, but, but it's always moving outward in, in the exposure markets or the exposed markets. And so how you'll know the tipping point will be kind of this trend and the reality is most institutions think in terms of fixed timelines, right? So if the if the big one hits Miami, you know, um, and you're expected to sell the year after, you're likely going to have a problem, right? You're going to have a liquidity experience that is not what you expected 10 years ago or seven years ago. And, 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 and that's in a catastrophic event in a, in a you know, in a, in a slow onset event. It could be that seven years from now, the lending requirements are just tiny bit more stringent, it affects your terminal cap rate, which can obviously massively affect uh, the performance of your asset for your investors. But Rajiv, I've always been concerned about slow onslaught because we talk about that as if there's plenty of time. I'll only lose a little bit, you know, or whatever, you know, it'll be a little bit worse. But I, I don't see financial markets behaving that way, or I haven't in the past when it comes to something. It's like there's a there's a point, and we don't know when that point's going to be, when suddenly things, after being slow for a long time, are fast. Would you care to comment on that thought? Yeah, I, I think, oh, and you probably have thoughts on this as well. I, I think we are more concerned with slow onset risk than catastrophic uh, risk. The big ones hitting are obviously problematic. Um, the frequency with which they hit could almost be considered slow onset in a way, but a place slowly getting hotter, a place slowly running out of water, a place where the tide, uh, you know, used to not be a nuisance and becomes 17 to 20 days a year, you know, certain roads can't be used. To Owen's point, that completely alters the fabric of a community. It completely alters the sort of urban social contract as to what you can do in that place, which has a more profound effect on the people living there and the human habitat of it all. So you're, you're right, when we talk about slow onset, oftentimes someone says, okay, it's going to be hotter in 10, 15, 20 years. That's someone's problem 10, 15, 20 years from now. But what it overlooks is this gradual change in the kind of use case for the community, the changing in how governments are going to have to respond, regulators are going to have to respond in order to kind of realize the fact that this is slowly happening. And we all see it, you know, in our wherever you might live in this country, if you grew up here, you know, it's a little bit different than it used to be. And it has changed certain things about how you experience your, um, your community. And that is going to accelerate is the other part of this is that it's not slowing down. It's if you think about the last 20 years and maybe your summers where you live are a little bit hotter, or maybe your family home is just a little more uncomfortable in certain months, that's going to accelerate. That's not a constant experience. So 20 years from now, you will be looking at an accelerated experience of what you've already had. Yeah, I, the example that comes to mind for me when we talk about this is uh, California. So I was just actually on a call this morning with a, a climate scientist who specializes in El Nino uh, or studies it very deeply. Um, everywhere we live deals with something called the precipitation evaporation equivalent, the PE equivalent. And that's just very simply the amount of water that comes down and the amount of water that goes back up. Um, around 75% of California's water supply comes north of Sacramento, but 80% of the water demand occurs in the southern two thirds of the state. So from year to year, this PE equivalent will always be a little bit off, uh, 
But groundwater and snow melt from the Sierra Nevadas has often offset those dry years. And they've obviously built this enormous reservoir system to manage it, as well as, you know, heavily, heavy investments in desalination, because California's always dealt with periods of water scarcity. But, uh, you know, we are talking about the most hydrologically altered landmass on the planet. It bears very little resemblance to how it was when, you know, um, Spanish settlers first got there 200 years ago, where deserts and grasslands once prevailed. Now reservoirs store water to move it to the arid land around San Diego. Swampy marshes have given way to landfill for urban development. Wetlands have been converted to farmlands. Um, but now you've got a water system that supports 35 million people, eighth largest economy on earth, most populated state in the country. Um, and you're effectively depleting things over time in the hope that these long drought cycles California's been living through are eventually going to stabilize and it'll go back to what it was in the 80s or 90s. Um, so if you think about something like the Central Valley, where half of US produce is, is uh, grown, what's it going to take for there to be one of these little tipping points? Or is it going to be a series of tipping points and then developers who have taken you know, very good data from CBRE or JLL and these big large reports and say that San Bernardino and Fresno and Sacramento are growing. Um, and so that multifamily development on the edge of town is gonna hit the vacancy or the occupancy rates that they anticipate. Uh, at what point does that start to shift? And, and that's why we always return to this point that there is no premium right now to transfer that capital uh, into a lower risk market because the exact same cap rate on offer in each of the markets I just mentioned is on offer in Madison, Wisconsin or Ann Arbor, Michigan or many other parts of the Northern Latitudes. Um, so that's really how we try to educate investors on slow onset to just understand that we can't absolutely tell you when the gear change is going to occur, but the price to transfer the capital right now is presently zero. Well, I'd argue that to a certain extent, something has already changed in that um, 10 years ago or earlier, there was a significant price advantage as you went south uh, in terms of housing, especially. Um, and that seems to be mostly in equilibrium um, at this point, which means there's less of that resistance to say, you know, I don't want to go north because it's more expensive. I'll get a shack for the mansion that I have in Dallas. That isn't true anymore. That that's pretty much equaled out. I mean, it, it's different in different markets, but I, I think it's interesting that just the friction has gone away that or initially was very much in the Sunbelt's favor. Um, but you're right. Who knows what's the point that, that people are going to start to turn? Well, the two of you have really bummed me out. Um, and uh, thank you for that. Um, if you ever want to ruin a dinner party. Yeah, I know. I mean, us. gosh, yeah. you, got, you guys must be a lot of fun. Uh, but as we look at this, and you are actively building a portfolio around this thinking and what's going, what should investors do to kind of start, start? how can we become smarter as an industry about how we invest and how we assemble portfolios around these risks? Yeah, I think a simple way we like to frame it is, which investors do all the time in every asset class and every kind of category, is think about risk on and risk off. And as you think about deploying money into real estate, as you think about that allocation, one thing we encourage investors to do is think about climate risk on and risk off. Where are you willing to take climate risk for what price, for what return and why? And part of your portfolio should be considered climate risk off. It should be considered something that you look to to completely 
mitigate the volatility that you would expect to see in a climate risk on market. And it's a simple way to think about it, but I think it helps clarify this issue of how investors should think about this, how can they communicate on this, especially when you think about large investors and the number of stakeholders they have, the number of processes, the number of participants, etc. The ability to uh, communicate it in that way and have to rationalize your climate risk on exposure. So if you're taking climate risk, you should be able to rationalize why you're taking it. And there is a we, we often say this where to, to the point, you know, uh, Owen's point, if you have similar cap rates between, say, Atlanta and a Florida market, you're not getting compensated for your risk in Florida because Atlanta is giving you meaningfully less risk for a similar story and a similar uh, return. Um, you know, that's a binary example. But yeah, if, if you're getting compensated for your risk, go for it. But we often think that investors should think in this way in order to really go at their portfolio from a simple perspective of, is it risk on? If so, what am I looking at? What can I expect? What uncertainty do I have to live with? And what am I potentially receiving in order to live with that? And then think about climate risk off where you say, okay, there are more traditional, uh, this is a more traditional lens to, uh, to try and achieve you know, an economic outcome where I don't necessarily have to worry about volatility uh, in, in a way that is going to be uncertain. That makes sense. It seems a little bit like 101, get paid for your risk, um, but important. Um, as we think about um, all of this, uh, and you guys are just wonderful dinner companions, I'm sure, is what are you most optimistic about? Is there something here that you think people are not paying enough attention to that is to the positive, that there's an opportunity for us to actually get this right. What do you think, Owen? Yeah, I, I mean, we, we jest a little bit about the pessimism, but honestly, uh, Raj and I are pretty optimistic uh, people by nature, but also with the investment thesis, because in a counterintuitive way, the early stage wealth destruction is going to be so pronounced in very small isolated settings that I think the market is going to wake up and adjust very quickly. And what I look forward to is you know a lot of the markets that we invest in uh, here where I live, Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, we obviously have this blend of the risk and the readiness. So we don't just look at the risk, but we say, okay, how ready is the real estate market to address its own unique risks? Um, some of the, the, the bars, the, the, just the, the basic regulations you need to do ground up development in a market like this, the sort of um, resilient flood proofing conditions, uh, the incentives on offer to do passive house, reduce your source and use energy needs. Um, I think we're going to be heading towards a place where many markets in this country, the low risk, high readiness markets, have fantastic assets, achieving really strong risk adjusted returns, and they're good buildings for the environment. And I think there's going to be a tenant premium for that. I think people will be willing to pay a little more to know that they're living in a building with a really tight building envelope, with um, heat pumps, with ventilation, uh, without a you know, natural gas furnace in the basement. And over time, we are going to move our communities away from harm's way and towards the lower risk parts of the country. And for us to be a very small part of that in that capital transfer event is the really exciting part. That is exciting. Um... Well, we've we've run out of time, and uh, I think we could probably do you know another session of of 
40 minutes and we still wouldn't get through all of the detail and all the, the information that's here. I encourage everyone, if they haven't already, to read Predicting the Climate Future in the last uh, issue of AFIRE's summit. Um, I think there's some fascinating maps there and some data and some detail. And I would also encourage all of you to reach out to Owen Wilcock and, and Rajiv Ranaday, uh, partners at uh, Climate Core Capital, uh, to talk uh, maybe in more detail about how to smartly approach uh, risk on for climate change. So thank you both for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank, thank you. you You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.